Hello, my name's Russell Howcroft. I've lived a lot of lives. I've been an ad man, a CEO, a chair, an author, a panelist, and I currently co-host a radio show on 3AW. And I'm partner and chief creative officer at The Sayers Group. And I'm host of this podcast. Welcome to Conversations, a Sayers podcast. Throughout my time, I've learned that so much in life starts with, yep, a good conversation. And that's what we're going to do right here today. I've got Peter Harris with me today. Peter's the CIO of the BIA Fund, although better known as the BRC Fund. Now, Peter, does anyone call you Peter or is it always Harrow? Harrow, 100%. Even my mum. Even your mum? Yep. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to call you Harrow then throughout the podcast if that's okay with you. No problem. Now, what we do um, at the beginning of the podcast is we, we want to make sure that you're relaxed, that you're feeling in a really good space. And so Freddie, who's a, who produces for us, he's got a number of sounds. And I, we just want you just to, you don't have to close your eyes, but sort of, you know, in effect, close your eyes and just think through the sounds and just at the end of it, tell me where, where you'd prefer to be, what evokes in your mind a, a great place to have a chat. So Freddie... Magnificent work. So, Harrow, fireplace, maybe beach, pub, out, wait, tell us. I'm 100% beach, and it can be actually quite specific. The Cape Patterson Beach, we've just had a body surf. We'll walk up to the surf club, beer on the deck. Nice. Very nice. Cape Patterson, tell me where Cape Patterson is. Uh, South Gippsland, in between Phillip Island and Inverloch. Yeah, and I've, I've been hearing a fair bit about Cape Patterson recently. Why would that be the case? Well, they've got a new Echo Village down there with a whole lot of five-star rated houses. It's very nice, um, and it's actually... Yeah, we've been down there for the last 20 years, so right. it's, uh, it's come a long way since then. But, um, you know, it's still very appropriate to have a bourbon and coke on the beach at 10 o'clock in the mororning from the locals, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's not quite Sorrento. <laughs> so um, how long does it take you to get to Cape Patterson? Uh, a couple of hours on a you know, good run, but, okay. you know, Friday night can be a bit of a nightmare, is there anyway? And is there any public transport to Cape Patterson? Uh, a bus, which leaves 5.30 in the morning or 7.30, so I can be actually be at work um, after an early start uh, if I get the public tra- uh, if I get the bus, so it's uh, not too bad. Nice. Okay. So, Harrow, uh, a really interesting career. So, I mean, when I read that you you have been the chief economist at Shell, I mean, that's clearly a position of, you know, sig- that is a significant position, and as a result, you'd have a very good handle on not just the local politics, uh, but the geopolitics and... And the, frankly, the way the world works is what is is what I'm guessing. Yeah, well, it's yeah. Energy makes the world go round, and uh, you know, obviously, there's um, there've been a lot of things going on in the last thirty years when I've been involved in energy. Um, you know, um, from OPEC to uh, you know the discovery of coal seam methane in the US, uh, and now you know this the switch to renewables that needs to happen at an yeah. accelerated rate. So, uh, it's not just the geopolitics; it's actually the you know the, the physics of delivering the energy. And also the personalities at the moment, like Putin and President Xi, are big right. players in that market. Okay, so I want to get really deep into energy politics, um, or just the way the world works. But before that, just tell us a little, little more about um, your career. You've been at the ComBank, you've been AMP, JCP Investment. So just give us a, just give us a few pars on where you've been in the business world. 
Uh, yeah, I, I wanted to be a marine biologist, and my careers advisor in year twelve told me into doing economics because it was better pay. Um, oh. So you know, what what was she doing? But uh, here I am now. Um, so I um, uh, finished my degree at the end of the ninety one recession, which we have to have. Yes, you know, eighteen percent interest rates. There wasn't much jobs in the pro- um, private sector, so I ended up working for the Industry Commission, which is now the Productivity Commission. Yeah. Uh, don't confuse me with the previous chairman of the uh, Productivity Commission, Peter Harris, uh, mm. far better economist than me, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and from there, I worked for the Victorian government, um, principally working directly for the secretary, John Patterson, who was a pretty interesting character, uh, and then went to Shell. So I um, ended up chief economist, and it was fun days back then. You know, I, I know it was big oil, it shouldn't be fun, but uh, you know, um, Shell had triple bottom line reporting, which is yes. essentially the precursor of ESG. There was 20 different inquiries when I was at Shell into petrol pricing, uh, you know, I was interviewed once by Alan Jones in the nude. Um, I thought Mark Latham was going to punch me in the face in Parliament House. So right. it was very different to the government, uh, is, is an understatement. And, uh, it, you know, and, and again, you, you learn how the world works. Like, you know, energy does make the world tick. Yep. And uh, you know, it was really good to get on top of all those issues. So you and I would have been... I, I worked at um, on Shell in, in an advertising context, uh, mid-90s. Um, so we may well have crossed paths. Um, we launched... Half lead, shell half lead. Were you involved at Shell at the time? Uh, we would have been unleaded by the time I got there. You, yep. you had an unleaded offering, so I think we missed by a couple of years. Yeah, and um, and as you say, there were good times because my one of my main recollections of that era was there was no bottom um, to the expense well. No. <laughs> I remember once um, one of the caterers that used to deal with one of our previous chairmen, I won't use his name, came up to me in tears going, so-and-so's you know, gone back overseas, back to London, what's happened? Because right. he catered at his house every night. Right. So you know, there, it, it was, um, you know, excess is the right word. Yes. Uh, which was you know, a pretty sad state of affairs when we actually weren't making any money. Like refining margins were negative. Um, the North West Shelf was doing okay. But um, you know, petrol prices were absolutely you know, as volatile and... and uh, and creating a lot more angst at the sort of political level, but we weren't making any money selling petrol, so you know it wasn't a great business to be spending five nights a week uh, uh, catering. So the so tell us about the Australian refining history. So where are we now? We've just shut one down. Um, well, how many have we got left? Two. We've got two refineries in the entire country. Well, we, uh, states, you know, you know what competitive federalism is like. Um, you know, states used to go out of the way to make sure everyone you know did it. So we had. Two refineries in South Australia, like, you know, that shouldn't probably have been the case. But uh, so, yeah, every, pretty much every large state had two refineries. Uh, and those, but those refineries were built a long time ago. So yeah. as they sort of got to the end of their useful life, and as petrol standards, you know, in, improved environmentally, it was just hard for those old refineries to keep up. Mm-hmm. And they were pretty subscale. Like there was one refinery in Indri- India that had the same capacity as all the Australian refineries put together. So yeah. at a cost level, it's pretty hard to compete there. Um, so I think there's a refinery in Brisbane and one in WA left. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been a fair bit of change. Okay, so fuel reserves. Um, so fuel reserves is something that um, there's, what, is it an 80-day recommendation? Yep. And what would it be right now? I, I think we're 30-ish. I'm not too sure. But right. so this, this always, the people arguing most for the fuel reserves are the people that want to build the tanks. Uh-huh. So like, you know, yeah. again, there's always a sort of, yeah, it, always think about who's wanting to change policies. Right. You know, if if we if we're stalling, you know, storing, you know, um, eighty days worth of oil, are we stalling eighty days worth of refined product? Like, what's the? Okay. Uh, you know, if if I was want if I was wanting security supply, I'd be storing refined product. 
You don't need a refinery to do that. Okay, you so can import it. Okay, so you, okay, but then is there not an issue around? Yes, you can import it, but what if the supply chains are in trouble? Well, you, can you import oil or can you import refined product? I'm assuming a supply chain in trouble would mean that someone's essentially block, blockaded the um, Malacca Strait, yeah, or the South China Sea, right? Either way, that's China doing it, yeah. Um, so. Yeah, if, if, if we're at that level, I, yeah. I wouldn't be too worried about the fuel supply. <laughs> if we got to that point, yeah, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> okay, so now, but last year there was a there was a shortage of Ad Blue. Now, um, tell me, tell us about that. What was what was all that about? So essentially, it's an additive to put into your diesel engine, particularly um, trucks, to make them perform better. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, and it's required to make certain levels of um, trucking gas uh, diesel. Um, meet the, uh, an environmental standard. Okay. So unless you add it, you, you're not technically supposed to drive. But if you if you don't add it, right. you can still drive. But you, know, you have a you have a you know um, a worse environmental outcome. So we just ran out because of supply chain issues, yeah. which we're seeing across the board. You know, there's all sorts of stuff in short supply. But when I reflected on that on AdBlue, I thought, gee whiz, that was fixed quite quickly. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, I don't know whether we imported it or created it ourselves, but um, yeah, I. I, I yeah, it just struck me as a I don't know when I when I was thinking about that. I mean, obviously through COVID times, there's been lots of issues, but we did I think in the main move quickly when there was a problem, and uh, there would be a problem afoot. Like AdBlue shortage is an issue, and I think you know I'm gonna I'm gonna make it up. It was something like you know we we did ten percent here and ninety percent came in, and then all of a sudden we were doing seventy percent here and thirty percent came in. Yeah, we can certainly react well in a crisis, which we saw in COVID with yeah. healthcare and a whole bunch of other things. But I think the first thing they did with AdBlue was say, we don't need to put it in in the short run. Like, right. you, you don't need to add it to your to your diesel. Like, you, over the long run, you, you need to come up with a solution. But as you said, like, once Australian manufacturers can sort of, you know, uh, know they've got a guaranteed market, yeah. they can adapt pretty quickly. It's funny, well, I've been um, hearing recently two two new terms. One of them's nearshoring. And the other one is friend shoring, and I, I assume they're both the same thing. Can you can you enlighten me on what they are? Well, you probably add onshoring to that, which is of course just making sure that you've got enough of the critical things you need, you know, domestically and and technology and you know fractured supply lines globally is is sort of pushing that. And a lot of our businesses are actually seeing that. Where clients are saying, we don't want to import anymore. We actually want to you know buy your products mm-hmm. um, for the same quality and the same price. But um, you know, friend shoring would be making sure that, for example, you're buying your oil off. Um, yeah, a friendly, so you're probably yep. buying oil off Africa, and I don't want to say Saudi's not a friendly, but yeah, you know, uh, yeah. So that that that, that would be the, the concept. Uh-huh. Uh, and nearshoring is um, obviously with freight rates and energy prices high, um, the cost of freight is in- increasingly becoming a um, a big aspect in terms of your your, your total imported cost. And air freight, in particular, is prohibitively expensive at the moment. Yeah. So I skipped over um, a couple of things you said that you uh, nearly got punched by Mark Latham and you um, were interviewed by Alan Jones in the nude. <laughs> so well, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, you better explain yourself. Um, so, you know, Alan's a funny character, but um, this is sort of, you know, I had my first exposure to the press once I joined Shell and um, we were very different. Like, we were, we were saying, look, we will be completely transparent in terms of petrol pricing. Right. So I set up a petrol pricing website that had a breakdown of where every fraction of a cent of a litre went. Yeah, I think I remember um, that. We would you know, publish the price at every shelf service station in Australia. And in the end, people stopped going to the Australian Institute of Petroleum, which was the sort of you know industry mouthpiece, and started coming to us because we could yeah. tell the story. And it was a pretty good story. Like, you know, petrol prices were volatile, but we weren't making any money. Right. Um, so... 
Alan Jones liked that story, particularly when we used to say, look, in Sydney, if you buy on a you know, Thursday morning, you're actually taking money out of you know the oil company's pocket, you know, and they're telling you to do this. So it was a nice bit of theatre on the radio, right? But um, you know, we, we we got on when Alan wanted to do a Q and A where people would ring up and I'd answer the question. And of course, I'd, I'd been out with a few of the rugby boys the night before, and I woke up in the morning when my phone rang. You know, you'd be yeah. used to breakfast radio at you know yeah. um, six fifteen in the morning. I may well have forgotten the uh, interview was on, and um, oh. you know, I sort of jumped up in the morning, and I'm walking around the bedroom uh, with not a lot on. My wife's going, "Who the hell are you talking to?" I'm going, <laughs> "So, um, she, she, so the, she was laughing ahead. Yeah. I'm trying to, you know, at, at Latham. That would have been La- when Latham was the leader of the ALP. I assume. No, no, that was when he was shadow industry minister, and oh. he was um, he was saying a lot of things in the press about petrol prices and what. And, and I called his office and said, "Look, what you're saying is actually not factually correct." Right. Um, can I get an appointment to see you? And they gave me an appointment like for 20 minutes in six months' time. And I said, you know what, I'm going to go. Yeah. And my boss at the time, John Simpson, you know, well, yeah, goes, look, yep. you are wasting your time. Right. I said, no, no, I'm still going to go. Belligerent, young, still think you know what you're doing. Yes. Uh, so I turned up. He was about 40 minutes late. When he came in, he gave me the big, you know, John Howard yeah. handshake. Yeah, we know that one. And um, I was <laughs> sort of uh, going, oh, well, I was trying to explain it. And then I sort of said, look, don't, don't, you know, he was saying, oh, you're a spin doctor. I said, look, well, just call your local shell at it. You know, Parramatta and ask right. if I'm saying what I'm saying is true. And he goes, "Oh, you'll have them waiting, you know, uh, waiting for my call." Okay, yeah. I said, "So the bloke that's earning, you know, not much and can't speak a lot of English is actually going to be ready to brief the shadow industry minister." Right. I said, "Look, like, call any servo in Sydney." He yeah. goes, "You'll have them all waiting for my brief." I'm right. Like, okay. You know. Yeah. <laughs> are you delusional? Yes. Yeah. Probably the thing I shouldn't have said, but I did. Yes. And then he, you know, really barked up, and I sort of okay. uh, excluded. You know, excuse myself for the meeting and sort of trot it off down the corridor. It is one of those things which is di- is difficult when business people speak to politicians. I think that's one of the toughest, those conversations where, um, I mean, I've always wondered why they needed to be, they can be adversarial. I wonder why, because clearly it, one's agenda is clear. Right? I mean... Well, yeah. particularly as a fund manager, so when you know companies used to come and talk to us, what they were basically trying to say is, this is how much value we're going to extract from a sector. Yeah, but when they go and talk to the, go- the government, they're saying, "Well, you know, we're really looking after you know the environment and customers." But the thing is, with ASIC rules, they can't lie to us, no. but you can lie to the government. So, <laughs> right. you know, w- w- I, we used to go to briefings, and I go, "What they're saying just isn't true." Like, because right. <laughs> look at their financial reports, look what they've actually said publicly. Um, but you know, a lot of the time, the, the you know the people that are making the decisions don't actually look what's publicly available, which they should. So, Harry, you 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 will often send me a text um, during a radio show, the radio show that I do. Um, try and and, fr- and it's, it's brilliant because you're trying to help me understand how petrol pricing works. Um, I still I don't know that I could articulate it now, um, so I'm going to ask you: How does just just for those that are listening, how does petrol pricing actually work? Now, I should say I left Shell 20 years ago, so... Um, yeah, but you uh, follow I know, it every day. I, I know, I know. Uh, as to the poor people I work with. Um, so when I left Shell, um, let's talk about the Melbourne market, for example. Mm-hmm. So say the, the wholesale price was a dollar. The price would range from a dollar up to a dollar twelve uh-huh. over the course of the week, peak on a Friday. So that, right. was, that was the weekly petrol pricing cycle. And what used to drive that cycle is the you know the small independents that don't have like the large retail offer of a Shell or a brand yep. like a you know um, a BP, they drove the price, mm-hmm. um, and and that was a weekly cycle. And typically, you know, the average difference between the wholesale price and the pump price was six cents, which right. is about what it costs to you know get a litre of petrol there. So you weren't making a lot of money, right. uh, and and the small independents. They were basically buying themselves a job. They used to work really, really hard 
to try and get those volumes through and, you know, they weren't making any money at all. (laughs) And they were the ones that drove the political angst. So it was the small, you know, in an electorate you've probably got 20 small service stations complaining to their local member, going, the oil industry is ripping us off. When in fact they should have been saying the oil industry is killing us by being too competitive. But <laughs> so um, th- then what happened? Um, uh, Coles and Woolworths entered the market and acted like a duopoly. Yeah, and they offered the four cents a litre discount, and they actually went to the ACCC, and the ACCC said, "Yeah, it's okay, not a great idea." So what that did? So Coles and Woolies basically said, "We'll match any price in the market." Plus, we're giving you four cents a litre off. That killed every small independent service station pretty much in the country within eighteen months. Yep. That killed the price discounting. So now what happens, for example, in Melbourne, um, you know, the, the wholesale price at the moment might be $1.75. Mm-hmm. So that price varies from about $1.85 up to about $1.35. And the average margin now is about sort of 20 to 25 cents. So it's a big, big difference. You know, six cents versus 20 cents yep, got is, it. Um, you know, showing you're sort of getting pretty well do you know. Right, so there's plenty of room for competitors to come in and drive the price down. But they are what... It, it, it just the price the price of entry is too high. Well, well yeah, you, well, you've got to buy your way in. So you've got, you know, once all those small independents closed, the value of the land was pretty much what the owner had. Oh, yeah. So they sold the land. So right. it, it, to, right. to come in and establish a network would be very difficult. Um, and also uh, to, to, to meet all the new environmental standards like the new tanks, temperature correction, all these things, it, it's pretty hard. Yep. Um, but you're also facing a market where, you know, we, we probably had peak oil two years ago. Mm. Um, so you're coming into a market where you're going, okay, well, in 10 years' time, is there actually going to be a market for the product I'm selling? So uh, I can't see a lot of people rushing in. Um, if I was the ACCC, I would say ban shopper dockets right now. Okay. Stop that four cents a litre, and I reckon you'd see more um, competition at the pump very, very quickly. I like it. So when thinking about Australia, I've often wondered, is one of, uh, is one of the reasons we are stable, right? we're sort of politically stable, economically, fundamentally, we're pretty stable, really. Is it because... The big stuff is the competition ain't that ain't that heavy, right? So so to cover the distances of Australia and to actually make Australia work, we end up with duopolies or we end up with only only a few competitors and those few competitors, they just get on with getting a fair market share and as a result we're all serviced well. Is that a is that a core component to who and what Australia is? It's certainly a core component as to how the business world works, whether it's part of our ethos you know, it, 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 well, you know i suppose you just it's that tyranny of distance you, you you've you need to be able to get the product you need and you're probably going to pay more for it yeah like for in the med tech world you know australia's the nirvana because we you know the margins that we pay for medical goods here is you know, astronomical so right. all this you know a johnson and johnson probably likes the australian market more than most of the asian market because you're making more money here for each thing you sell so okay so um, uh, speaking of the med tech world then um so brc is where you are now um, and you've got the BRC fund. So tell us about the, the role of the BRC fund. So um, over the last five or six years, we've created 11 businesses, um, and you know, um, they were essentially funded by BRC. So MedTech, Moving, Food, um, and now in Sustainable Manufacturing. Um, we've just also entered the property market down at Arden Central. Um, and to give in other investors, like we've got you know, some high net worth investors into BRC plus the founders, we gave, you know, we created a fund to essentially, you know, um, allow people to get exposure to the wider BRC um, uh, portfolio. So uh-huh. uh, initially, people were sort of picking and choosing what businesses they wanted, but over the course, you know, 
you know, things like Arden Central would come out of the blue and people, if they would have invested directly into an individual business, would miss that. So right. they, they, they want, people want exposure to the wider portfolio of effect as opposed to just individual businesses where, you know, the journey can be stop-start sometimes. Okay, so Meditech, that's clearly something... That, well, if we're thinking about our part of the world, yep. we're pretty good at this, at that medical, you know, it's, it's a core pillar um, to our economy. So you're investing in... Uh, so we've got um, uh, 3D Meditech, which is essentially a 3D printing company down in Port Melbourne where we 3D print personalised medical devices. So this is, a, again, an example where technology can overtake that sort of international comparative advantage story. So right. um, instead of making a standard product, we make a standardised, individualised product. So, you know, for example, clear aligners, you know, you're not just selling something that fits every person, you're actually tailoring it to each person, um, you know, as, as, as you make their clear aligners. Uh-huh. We make angle foot orthotics for kids with cerebral palsy. Um, we make helmets for kids with plagiocephaly. Yeah. And during COVID, we sort of pivoted the business because essentially there was no people going to the dentist or no kids going to the orthodists. And we started making ventilator parts, PPE, uh, hazmat suit filters, and we ended up with a Mediswab business, which um, uh, is actually making more money than the rest of them at the moment, which <laughs> good. is, which is a, a good pivot by the engineers. Thanks, and pandemic. <laughs> yes. But also, we're about to start a, a COVID and influenza test in aged care in Melbourne. So, ah. you, know, uh, you know, people are sort of used to the new normal, but yeah. uh, with this new wave of COVID coming, I think it's important that we make sure that the people that are going to work in, you know, uh, where our vulnerable people are housed... Don't aren't taking in both influenza and COVID, so it. nice. it's a it's a cool test. And, and will you do hips and knees and all that, or do you do that? Uh, yeah, we've just established a joint research and training and centre with uni- with the University of Melbourne. Um, we've got thirteen PhDs working on a range of projects. Uh-huh. Uh, one is a titanium hip, and you know working on a knee down the track, but also things like bolus. Um, things for broken hips. So there's, you know, some really smart kids at the University of Melbourne working away and um, they're sort of channelling those products uh, into our businesses and we get sort of first right of refusal on each of the ideas um, and the ability to commercialise them. The last two joint research and training centres in Melbourne were Cochlear and CSL. So um, if we can replicate a small amount of their success, um, you know, it'll be a great, great outcome. But we, we can't. Yeah, the support we've got from university and the Victorian government is, you know, we're just so thankful for that. All right. So uh, you you were the chief economist at Shell, as we've already established. So I, I can't help myself. I need to ask you some of the, the big stuff, right, some of the macro stuff. Now, I mean, one of the things that which is, must be a lot of fun about being an economist is you do, you know, you legitimately look into the crystal ball and you say whatever you want to say and then no one goes back and says that was wrong. <laughs> Just as an aside, it's really good fun to look up BOM, the, uh, the Bureau of Meteorology, and have a look at the exclusion clause at the bottom of the page when you scroll through and it says um, numbers the numbers are averages and there might be a 40% differential one way or the other. So, Harrow, I'm letting you off the hook here, mate. I'm letting you have the same exclusion clause as the bomb. So, let's have a think about growth. Yep. So, crystal ball time, give us your growth for Australia. For Australia. So, Australia is essentially a two-trick pony. We've got resources and banks. So, what we need to do is broaden that manufacturing or broaden that, you know, uh, investment base. And you can do that just by simply trying to boost productivity in manufacturing. Um, banks are underpinned essentially by migration. So, um, you know, we've fought the last, yeah. from Kevin 07 to, you know, probably the last one wasn't at the same extent, on climate change and stop the boats. Yeah. Trust me, the Western world will be screaming for people in 10 years' time because our population is going to peak. Yep. And at the moment, people are going, oh, we've, you know, inflation, wage inflation is high because we haven't enough people. Right. So 
banks are underpinned by migration. Right. So unless we boost productivity, that sort of um, migration dividend, if migration levels don't come back to where they were, yeah. productivity is essential for us, the Australian economy to grow okay. and out, out, out sort of jump inflation. Okay, so you're slightly confusing me here. I get the product, we need productivity, but why is migration relevant to productivity? Well, without so say we keep migration at the current level, right? Inflation will erode any gains you get in terms of growth. Right. So you need productivity on top of migration growth right. to actually grow in a real sense. Okay. So you know, inflation's actually you know, the Reserve Bank's been trying to manufacture inflation for the last twenty years. We've finally got somebody <laughs> I know. panicking. I know. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> exactly. It's like where's all the inflation gone? Oh, now we've got. I I completely agree with you. Now, big Australia. So, I mean, I, I'm, a big, I'm for a big Australia. I'm thinking you're, a big, you're yeah. for a big Australia. So how big is too big? Well, uh, again, when, when, you, when you're in a large capital Sydney city and you've got, you know, um, congestion, infrastructure spend, everyone goes, oh, my God, this is terrible. But, you know, say, for example, the Andrews government has benefited massively from addressing those issues. Yes. Like, what government can say, I built 50, whatever it is, level crossings. Oh, yeah. Every time I go over the train crossing, you know, Kuyong Road, I get excited because yeah. I know I used to have to wait there for yeah. 10 minutes. So yeah. it's addressable and it boosts productivity. Right. Like if you're investing in things that, you know, uh, actually promote economic growth and infrastructure is a great one, yep. it's not a bad problem to have. No, I, I, um, I, you know, you could be like Japan yeah, yeah. and there's no solution there. So Well, well the... The Japan issue, I think, is that you've got you in effect in China. You've got an inverted triangle at the top. Right? You've mm. got you've got you've got more old people than you do have younger people. Yeah. So, again, when I was studying economics and first joined the public service, you know, Japan was the model. Yes. And you know, it's an economic miracle. It was just it was a population dividend that just rolled off. Right. So China's got the same thing coming pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, given the one child policy, and and probably India is where we're going to have to pin our um, hopes on for the next, you know. 10, 20 years. And it sounds like we are starting to focus on India. It'll be a very different um, economy to cater to than China. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, China was very much infrastructure-led, so essentially um, started off by fueling their residential... Con- you know, this basically the urbanisation shift. So, you know, the shift from 80% rural to, you know, 80% um, living in cities. Yep. And we used to always track the capacity of steel per person consumption. That was a good way to you know get a level on where iron ore demand might go, uh-huh. and then essentially they created the um, one belt one road, which is essentially exporting their steel intensity. Right. So, yeah, everyone thinks about it, you know, nation building and helping other people. It was just a way to keep their local government coal and steel businesses afloat. Uh-huh. So, you know, that won't happen in India. You're going to have to target India with you know cons- consumption, right. you know, goods, right. health goods. Uh-huh. Import, um, you know, people in India want to study in Australia. That would be the focus on the Indian, uh, Indian economy versus China. Got it. I like it. Now, productivity is always mentioned. Explain it to me. Well, it's it's essentially boosting the average um, output per worker. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, education is the most important thing there. Right. So, you know, um, the average education of every person is what their mother's education was. Yeah, so, right. w- you know, we just need to keep boosting that at every level. Um, and and get people, you know, probably some of the most disadvantaged people is where we need to give the best educators a go. Right. So, um, you know, um, we get this quite a disparate economy where there's, you know, people that are quite productive, they've been well-educated, you know, but there's a whole section of the economy that's just sort of getting left behind. Right. So you need to drag those people up. So it's not just talking about getting a, you know, a PhD in molecular physics. Right. It's getting the persons whose parents probably weren't working. Yeah. 
now working as a forklift driver. I know that sounds no, I, pretty I, basic, I, but that's that's what you just got to drag that section of the economy up. Okay, okay, so you improve productivity by getting more out of the individual. Yep. Yeah, and you get more out of the individual via them being better educated. Certainly, better educated, uh, better use of technology, uh-huh. um, and you know. I think the, uh, the 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 new Albanese government's got a few good ideas in terms of they've got a fifteen billion dollar um, uh, national reconstruction fund aimed at bringing on shore some of those businesses that we sort of you know relied on during COVID and we couldn't get access to products. Um, but they've also got a policy of, um, and this sounds very unsexy, but uh, basically procurement. So if you're a um, a public service or a Commonwealth public service body and you consume you know any consumable good, yep. If you can get Australian for the same quality and same price, you got to buy Australian. Now they need to implement that because, like, there's people like us that are already investing on the back of the fact that we know this is coming. But yeah. they need to actually just start, you know, getting it moving. And that's as simple as saying to the procurement officers that run these departments, yeah. going, "Buy Australian, boys. Like, this is it's not that hard." It's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and yeah. just just purely by the you know the sheer weight of government procurement mm-hmm. saying we want to we need to buy Australian, then that's going to actually that in itself is support to the local industry. Yeah, and again, when no free kick. Yeah. Same price, same quality. Totally. Um, yeah, but everyone goes, well, you know, we've been buying off these people for a long time. It's like, well, you know, if all of a sudden you can't import any goods anymore, it uh, makes it a bit more difficult. So. Right. Let, let's get into climate policy. Why not, right? So the the government, the federal government, yes, we've signed up to zero by 2050. Yep. Uh, 43% by 2030. Yep. Yep. So how does that... <laughs> right. So there's the headline number. Yep. Um. I used to own a pie factory. Yep. And um, we employed, you know, let's say 15 people um, and uh, we tried hard to create a good business. How do I, as a small to medium enterprise owner, go about reducing my carbon footprint by 43% by 2030? Like, like who leads the way, I suppose, is the question. At that scale... Um what I'd be doing if I owned the factory, I'd be going to Macquarie Bank or something like that saying, I want to sell you my roof and get solar right? and then maybe some sort of battery solution. But, you know, of course, the, the, at the broader level, it's going to be driven by, um, you know, what, what, what targets are set and then it's the large generators and retailers that are going to, you know, drive the majority of that, um, that, that sort of um, targets. But also, you, you mentioned, this is also interesting, the Commonwealth, everyone talks about what, you know, Matt Carnivan, Barnaby Joyce, all, all those guys are saying, well, gee, you know, the Commonwealth's got a big role in this. Commonwealth doesn't have anything to do with climate change anymore. It's the states. So the states have set much higher targets yep. uh, in terms of net zero and, and the renewable energy target. So it's a bit like, you know, if the states all had mandated seatbelt laws in the back and the front seat and the Commonwealth said, hey, you know, we're going to mandate seatbelts in the front seat, people would go, who cares? Right. It's exactly the same as climate change. The uh-huh. states are now running True. the show. True. Um, so let's focus on what they're saying but, as opposed to the Commonwealth. Okay, so, but I suppose my point was... With a, maybe the lame, you know, example around a pie factory. Oh, okay. Yep, yep. My, my my point is, who is educating the population on the behaviours that everyone will need to embark on in order to have the reduction that we have promised? Like a zero emissions, zero emissions target means everyone's doing something differently. I assume. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So again, if, if, if the average punter on the street, you know, yeah. what are they going to do? Well, they, you know, they buy the electricity from someone. They can choose a green option, but what's the incentive to do that? Probably right. not much at the moment. And the governments across Australia have subsidised so much solar on the roof they can't keep doing it. Right. Otherwise, you're getting these peaks where you know solar's 
running the country, yep. the sun goes down and there's a massive shortage of demand. So there's a whole bunch of different things going on. Uh, in terms of solving this, you know, inf- energy inflation dragon or monster, whatever they're calling it, yeah. there are some short-run solutions which you could do. For example, um, mandate a 30%, 30% DOM gas target on the East Coast, yes. which they have in um, WA. Yeah. So what happened, um, it was actually a, uh, the Santos CEO in mid-2000s, John Ellis Flint, said, I'm going to get the East Coast gas price to the export parity price. I'm going to do that by building an LNG plant in Gladstone. Right. So more supply in order to make that happen. Yep. So we needed more supply. So in that case, the, 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 the gas price is about two fifty. Uh-huh. As soon as we put an export parity, or sorry, uh, uh, an LNG terminal in Gladstone, the whole East Coast gas market went to the export parity price because right. you got a choice. I can sell it two bucks, or I can sell it eighteen bucks. So what they do in WA to alleviate that is they say that you know twenty percent of your production has to stay local. So. What happened is we used to um, uh, consume about 60 petajoules a day of gas in the East Coast. Yeah. That's gone to 180 because of the LNG terminals. Mm-hmm. So you just need to say, okay, 40% of your production for every gas producer needs uh, to stay on the East Coast. Must be domestic. Yeah, gas prices going down instantaneously. Okay, so it is one of those things which it, it I'm sure is surprising to every single Australian. How can we possibly be energy stressed in this country? Um. Again, going back, what, what, what happened is, um, you know, when we started talking about greenhouse and, and setting targets, John Howard was the first one that instituted, you know, the, yeah. such a measure. So New South Wales started off the greenhouse scheme. The rest of the states thought this is a good idea, so the states in charge. The Commonwealth took over. Um, but then we've essentially done nothing for 15 years. But, you know, in really, really simple terms, the solution was going to be we'll shut down coal as those coal-fired generators come to the end of economic life. And we'll switch gas in the, in the transition to more renewables. Yeah. But the problem was when gas price is three bucks, that makes a good idea. When it's eighteen bucks, it doesn't work. So, fifteen years of nothing happening, then all of a sudden you're getting this transition, which is very clouded by a higher gas price. So, you know, you, you you've got to address that gas price to, to enable the transition to keep happening. Um, and as I said, there's there's some fixes there. Right. Uh, another fix would be at the moment what you've got is the thermal coal price is astronomically high. So there's a whole bunch of generators that have their own coal supply. Now, they're obviously making out like bandits. Mm-hmm. Because the they can right now. Yep. But the, the coal price for the base load is being set by people that are putting $250 a tonne coal into their generator. Uh-huh. So that's why the wholesale price is at $300, not 30 what it used to be. Yep. So, again, take away the policy framework. What you would do is you would align the people with cheap coal with a generator. So it's... it's it's an engineering solution, essentially. So, again, you want to get the marginal producer to be putting $30 coal in, okay. not $250 coal. Okay, so right now we, what, about 15% of the GDP, Australia's GDP is coal? Yep. Yeah, and we are, and our income, the, the nation's income is going up off the back of selling a lot of coal to a lot of the world. Yep, and we don't even sell a lot of China anymore. No, that's right. Yeah. right? It, it, and it just fascinates me that yeah. that, that, that is the, the reality of our economy is so much of it relies on selling. So at what point are we not going to do that? Well, I, I think, you know, the transition to um, net zero has got to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, it's, it's just, you know, you just have to have a look at what's happening to uh, actuarial insurance rates to see the world is getting a much riskier place in terms of climate. That's Yes. It goes without saying. So in the end, we have to transition away from coal. It's just the timing. Yep. Now, you know, um, I've got to have some sympathy for the Australian coal producers where they go, well, 
our coal is a much higher calorific value than yeah. Indonesian coal or Chinese coal. Yep. So if the Chinese are going to burn coal, they're actually much better off burning our coal. Yeah, and that would be true? That, well, 100% true. Yep. Yeah. Well, it's, it's purely the... The, the, the value, nature of the coal. The nature of the coal. Yep. Um, so, or the quality of. Yeah, yeah. It's just got less impurities. So, you know, I, I see Australian coal exports probably hang on for longer than other countries purely because it's a higher energy value. Yeah. But in the end, that's going to have to stop. We're going to have to stop burning coal. Okay, so we always hear this no, this word baseload, baseload power. Yep. What, what is that? So what percentage of our power needs to be baseload, i.e. just consistent and always there, is what I assume is baseload? Uh, off the top of my head, I would say maybe 40%. 40%. Yeah, that's a guess. Okay, but so so what it is? It's the things that keep the you know commercial properties humming. It's the things that you know um, they're not catering for spikes in demand. So um, take summer for example. Um, if you've got a really really hot day in Sydney and Melbourne, uh-huh. um, once the solar power goes off or the wind stops blowing, all of a sudden that base load is is met. You might be able to increase it up a bit, but then you need intermediate or you know um, stopgap power. So. That's the hard bit to cater for. The base load is turn it on, keep it on, run efficiently as efficiently as you can. So um, now uranium, we've got. I mean, it's a very high percentage of the world's uranium, right? It's like I don't know whether it's forty percent, but somewhere between thirty-five and forty percent of the total global stocks of uranium are here in Australia. Can you see us going nuclear? Nuclear power is obviously what I mean. Yep. So um, Olympic Dam has probably 50% of the world's known uranium. Oh, okay, so um, I've got so it wrong. It's a, it's bigger than what I said. And it's in one mine. But, so that's <laughs> not... There's there's other uranium mines. Um, you know, so if I was putting on the hat of someone who's pro-nuclear, I'd say, well, why don't we just build a nuclear power station next to Olympic Dam yep. and that runs baseload for Australia. The government funds it. A bit more complex than that. Yep. So for a start, you would need, you know, nuclear physicists, nuclear electricians to, to set it up, run it. Yep. Um you probably wouldn't put it on South Australia because it's the end of the grid. Yep. So, you know... Needs to be closer to a, more of a mass population. So it's going to go to Latrobe Valley uh-huh. or Macquarie. Uh, sorry, you know, Lake Macquarie in, in, in Newcastle. Yep. Um, so, hello, South Gippsland residents. You're happy with the location. So, yeah. But let's assume we jump through all that. We, we found a location. It's mandated. Yep. The biggest hurdle would be insurance. Like, who's going to insure it? So even the government said, okay, we'll self-insure it. Yep. But you just wouldn't have anyone to build it. <laughs> like, there's there is... How many people are studying, you know... Yeah, but they can be imported, those individuals. Yeah, but by the time we come up with other energy solutions, okay. like, you know, cleaner batteries, hydrogen... like You reckon we'll, you reckon we'll yeah. jump that? We'll, 100% we'll jump it. Okay, yeah. great. And, 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 and yeah, same with nuclear submarines. I've, I've made some stupid bet yeah. that I do something on my BMX uh, down Con Street if we ever build a nuclear submarine in Australia. Yeah. You don't think No chance. Well, who, who, who in the Navy knows how to service it? Like, <laughs> you know, why, why don't we just contract it out? Yeah, I think I, I agree with that. So, you, yeah. but you're not saying we're not going to operate nuclear submarines. We're going to operate them. We're just yeah. not going to build them. Not build them and not run them. Okay. Like, yeah. Okay. So, um, but like you know, you, you could, you can import a small nuclear power or nuclear generator on a barge and put it in Melbourne or Sydney in yeah. six months. Yes. Like yes. You, that, you can do it. Yeah. It's just politically, I just don't think it's ever going to happen. And you know, you've got a tin here politically if you've, um, if you you know not thinking about what the Greens did at the last election. What the Teals did, the Teals essentially were climate change, yes. you know, um, the independent inquiry against corruption and um, you know, a bit of women's issues. So yeah. your real big chunk of the vote is going to go, well, that's not ever happening. So oh, oh, yeah. so from a pure power perspective, you could probably make it work. I just don't think you'd be able to build it in time. Okay, I like it. Right. So um, 
Fred, this is Freddie, as yep. you know, who does our production. So I, I, we like to ask Freddie if he's got anything that he would like to ask our guests. So Freddie's given me the nod. So Freddie, over to you. Thanks, Russ. Um, Harrow, if you could instill one quality within the next generation of Australian business leaders um, with the desired effect of increasing our chances of survival and success, um, what would that, that one personal quality be? Um, that's a really good question. I, I think um, this is, I'm trying to get the right term, getting at it. Like you, uh, what we saw in COVID was a sense of urgency. And people delivered. And it's hard to instill into people that, you know, despite the fact the Australian economy feels like a safe, nice place, we really need to be on our toes to be able to, you know, compete with the rest of the world. So I just think that if you can install a sense of dynamism and have a go and, and, and if you get something wrong, it's, it's, that's what the US works. Like if you get bankrupt, people go, oh, well, have another go. Yeah. In Australia, you make a bad political decision, hangs around your neck forever, yeah. businessman goes broke, exception of, you know, Andrew Forrest had Murray and Murray and he's now the richest bloke in Australia. Like it, it can happen, but it's, it, it's, it's pretty tough. So dynamism and having a go, you know, and that sounds like a, you know, cliche. But no, I, I, tell you, I tell you what I did like is getting at it, mm. right? So yeah, having a go, dynamism, but just this phrase, get at it. I, I love Harrow. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, we've, we, Freddie and I, have thoroughly enjoyed having a chat to you. Thank you very much and really appreciate uh, you giving me the opportunity. Thanks.
Thanks very much, Jane. It's been fantastic speaking to you. Good luck with everything. Um, I know you're in a hurry. That's good news. You've got to go to another meeting. Cheers. Thanks, Russell. It's been fun.